There's a church in Louisville, Southeast Christian Church. It's incredibly large. In fact, their building is the third largest arena in the state where University of Kentucky plays basketball, where University of Louisville plays basketball, and then this church. It is massive. Uh, the building uh, seats about 7,000 people. The senior pastor there for a long time was a fellow named Bob Russell, and I had the opportunity one time to have lunch with Bob Russell, and uh, super sweet guy, and he, he tells some awesome stories, and he was telling me this story about visiting the hospital. Now, in a church that size, I think they were... They ran about 14,000 a weekend, something like that. I believe it's more than that now. And you may know one of the associate pastors is um, Kyle Eidelman, and he wrote Not a Fan. And, and so it's a church, and, and it's huge. And in a church that size, you're going to have people in the hospital every day, all day. And it was so large, he couldn't go see everybody in the hospital. And so the church, became, they kind, you kind of get in a rhythm as a church. And as a church, there's a rhythm, and... And the rhythm was this, that uh, Bob Russell would only come visit you if you were really, really sick. Like if you were terminal or something like that, that would be the only time you're likely to see him. That's just kind of how it worked. They had people on staff that would do visitation, that kind of thing. And so one day, Russell, Russell was telling me, one day he was at the hospital and he was visiting a terminally ill person and, and he had prayer with him and, and talked to the family some and uh, while he was, about the time he was leaving the hospital, he gets a, a, a text message from his assistant saying, hey, one of your friends is in, uh, he has, he's having minor surgery in the morning, but they, they brought him in early, and he's there prepping for that. If you want to pop in to see him, uh, that would be great, and it's a good friend of his, so he was excited to do that. But he said when he walked in the room, the guy was in the bed, and his eyes got really big, and he looked at his wife, and he said, exactly how sick am I? Well, well, the point of the story is this. Spiritually speaking, we're often a lot sicker than we realize. We're going to kind of unpack this all day long because we're talking about healing. Now, we're not talking, we're not, in fact, we're not specifically talking about physical healing. But in the Old Testament, there was sort of this connection between uh, loving God and, and, and healing. Let, let me show you this text. We've seen this one a bunch. The 103rd Psalm, Bless the Lord, O my soul who forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. That song that just now talked about healing all our diseases. And and something from this text that we can take is that God cares about all of our brokenness. It's not just physical brokenness. He cares about our emotional brokenness, which is oftentimes worse. He cares about our um, spiritual brokenness, which is the most important thing. And so it's not just physical healing he's talking about here. It's uh, emotional healing. It's, it's spiritual healing. And we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 8 today. Now, Matthew 8 and 9, sort of this series of stories. Uh, Jesus heals people, physically heals people. Uh, he heals um, uh, a leper. He heals a centurion servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals a demon-possessed person. He heals a paralytic. He heals the blind. He heals the mute. And and so there's this sort of summary verse in Matthew 4 that says, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, and he did some things. He he was teaching in the synagogues. He taught. Uh, He announced the good news, so he's announcing. And, And he healed every disease and every illness. Now, um... 
with Jesus, this healing was physical, some of these at least, and it was a sign of, of Jesus cares about your brokenness. But Jesus didn't heal everybody physically. In fact, there's this story, it's kind of an interesting, uh, odd story in John chapter 5. Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, and it says that there were large multitudes of people that were ill there, and the, the idea was the waters would stir, and if you got into the water first, that you got healed. And so there were lots of people there waiting for the waters to stir. And in John 5, there's this story about Jesus going there with multitudes of sick people. He evidently walks through the multitude, healed one dude, and then walks out. I mean, it's, it's almost, I mean, I envision it like this. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, healed. Excuse me, excuse me. And he kind of walks in and out. He doesn't heal everybody physically, but he heals some people physically. But the bigger point of this healing is he longs to heal. We'll all be healed physically when we go to heaven. I mean, that's kind of how it works. In fact, everybody he healed uh, physically then eventually died. I mean, Lazarus isn't alive even today. And so that healing was temporary. We're going to get physical healing in heaven eventually, ultimately. It's awesome. But spiritual healing is available for us today. So, in the middle of all these sort of healing stories, um, Matthew inserts his story. Matthew 9, look at this. As Jesus went on from there, from a healing, by the way, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and he followed him. Now, just a real quick guess. Um, Quick question, who do you think wrote the book of Matthew? Matthew, great. All right, you're on top. That, awesome. Okay, so Matthew tells this story. It, it's, it's as if he's saying, okay, there's physical healings, and then Jesus healed me. He, he didn't heal me physically, but think about Matthew. He was, he was a religious outsider. His own people hated him because he worked for the government. He was an outcast, and... He was isolated, and he felt, I'm certain, guilt for this. And Jesus healed his soul. And this is what Matthew's talking about. Hey, he healed my soul. Now, remember, that's the most important thing. Your soul is more important than anything else. And we talked about this last week. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who kill your body but can't touch your soul. The most important thing is your soul. And the most important thing about your soul is to have a healthy soul. So Matthew uh, is healed spiritually and the first thing he wants to do is tell his rowdy friends. So he has a rowdy friend party. His strategy is this. Jesus has healed me spiritually. I'd like to get some people who need spiritual healing in the same room with him. So he throws a party. It's a great idea. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. I think this is probably my, one of my favorite stories in Scripture because what it says is those of us who know Jesus really ought to be hanging out with those of us who don't. Right? I mean, Jesus was invited to a party knowing that there would be tax collectors and prostitutes and disreputable people and all the rowdy people in the community were going to be at this party and Jesus shows up. Now, you can imagine, as you can imagine, the religious elite of the time, the Pharisees and others, didn't, 
the text literally says, were deeply troubled that Jesus would hang out with sinners. Jesus was even called the friend of sinners. And, and they sort of raise a stink about this. The idea was that by Jesus hanging out with these people, he was implicitly endorsing their lifestyles, which isn't the case at all. But that's exactly what they thought. How could a man who was a prophet think it's okay to hang out with disreputable people? Jesus catches wind of this, and this is his response. On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus, in this one-sentence parable, has three main characters and really talks about why he is on earth in the first place. There's a doctor. Now, the doctor is Jesus himself. Hey, uh, he said, I I came uh, to to not heal the righteous, but but sinners. I mean, he kind of gives his purpose statement. You have the sinners, the sick, and then you have the healthy, those people who think they're okay. Now, there's a, something about being spiritually sick. Um, these people are needy. Can you imagine? Matthew had to make a pitch, right, to get his friends there. He would have to make a pitch for this. Hey, um, prostitute friend of mine, uh, I'm going to have a dinner party with a rabbi. Now, most of these people are really religious and they're going to make you feel really bad, but not Jesus. Can you imagine the sale he's going to have to make on that? And hey, tax collector friends, and hey, other disreputable people, it's okay to hang out with Jesus. He had to make a pitch for this to get them to come. Now, the thing about this is people who are, who are spiritually sick are needy. And oftentimes they're pretty in touch with their pain. You, you know, you can kind of... You can medicate it, you can drink yourself into a stupor, but when you get sober, you know the things that are wrong in your life. These are needy folks, and they're kind of in touch with their pain. This past week, um, I have a friend who lives in New Mexico, and, and at 42 years old, he was diagnosed with congestive heart failure, at 42. So, from the time he was diagnosed, I mean, immediately he was put on a, um, a heart transplant list, 103 days later, he dies. He goes in, kind of wasn't feeling great, but he had been healthy all his life. He worked on the railroad. He was a big, strong boy. Uh, had a wife, kids, 42 years old. He goes in for a kind of a checkup. They discover some irregularities in his heart. Next thing you know, he's on a heart transplant list. He goes from healthy to dead in 103 days. And we hear these stories, and it, they... We, two things happen, at least for me. I, I, I feel for him. I feel for his family. It kind of breaks my heart. I, I've kind of, it kind of hurt my spirit all week. Because it's like, man, I, I'm sorry that happened to him. But on the, on the other side, let me just be real here. I'm thinking, that could happen to me. I mean, it could happen to anybody. I was 40 years old. I was, I was healthy, happy. I had a heart attack at 40 years old. It can happen to anybody. I, I woke up one day and, and my chest hurts. It's like, okay, well, that's weird. Maybe I have heartburn. I never had heartburn before, so I didn't know what it felt like. But it's kind of stingy in my chest. And then next thing you know, I'm, I'm throwing up a bit. And I'm like, well, this isn't, I don't think heartburn does that to you. So I go to the ER. Now, this, um, 
this is, if this ever happens to you in the ER, you know you're in trouble. I go to the ER, there's a triage nurse there. She's asking me questions. I'm telling her my symptoms. When the triage nurse's eyes get really big, you're in trouble, all right? Her eyes got big. She stopped writing. She took me by the elbow and jogged me back where the doctors were. Now, when they're jogging you someplace, you're not supposed to jog in the hospital. She was, it was serious. They gave me some clot buster and, you know, uh, um, it, it worked out. I mean, God had it all uh, ready the way it needed to be. I, I got flown on a really cool helicopter. And uh, um, you're on a helicopter flying at a million miles an hour and they put a helmet on you. Like that's going to do any good. Anyway, um, uh, I mean, I think if you crash, it, you're toast. But anyway, um, they flew me to Lubbock and I'm, in, I'm at Lubbock and this doctor comes in. He was awesome. His name is Jerry Maddox. And um, uh, Jerry Maddox is that doctor that they come in and they talk to you for like 17 seconds and then they're on to the next guy. Jerry Maddox comes in. He talks to me. He says, how are you feeling? I said, well, uh, I feel okay, I guess. And he said, well, this was July 3rd. He said, well, we're all basically, we're all going on vacation tomorrow. We'll get to you on the 5th. Kind of what he said to me. And I said, well, Doc, i got to tell you, my heart's hurting right now again. And <laughs> he goes, well, maybe we should go now and look at it. And so he wheels me in, and, and uh, they, they insert stints. And I mean, God had all that timed out perfectly. But what, what I'm saying is this. Physically, you really don't, all of you are a time bomb. I just want you to know that. Be encouraged. Uh, you could drop. Like right now. Um, But spiritually speaking, these folks who were the sick sort of had a notion around their sickness, right? They, They were needy. They knew they were needy. And then you had the healthy. Now, the healthy were the religious leaders, and they're kind of proud, and they look like they're doing well, and they sort of have a well manicured image. And on Facebook, everybody thinks they're doing great. And They don't think much of the sickos. They kind of talk down about them. And what Jesus said about them often is there's sort of this gap between reality and and perception. That people perceive them to be all together, but deep inside where their thoughts lie, there's this gap. And it's not pretty because they're kind of putting on a show. But when nobody's looking, they're not that great. Jesus talked about that whitewashed tombs on the outside they look sparkly clean but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones he said he called them brood of vipers i mean jesus was brutal in his assessment of these folks he he wasn't he didn't read that book how to win friends and influence people because he just sort of said it like it was kind of brutally honest with them hey because here's the deal it was Our spiritual state is so important, Jesus would rather you know the truth and not like him than not know the truth. Uh, I mean, he would rather you know the truth about your spiritual condition and not like him than to not know. So, who did the doctor come for? Well, Jesus said, I came for the sick, right? And who did the doctor not come for? He said, I didn't come for the righteous. And the bigger question is, Which category are you in? Are you in the healthy category or the not healthy category? And what about the people around you? Look at them but don't say. I mean, really? And then 
The disease the sick people suffered from, he explains it, was sin. And the big idea for the day is sin can be overcome. Now, that's really good news. I mean, I'm not sure there's better news than sin can be really uh, can be overcome. The problem is, sin is such a powerful disease that we can't manage it ourselves. We'd like to think we can, but we can't. So the, the way we get our handle on how do we manage sin, which we can't do ourselves, like we've got to have help, wh- what does it take for sin to be managed in my life? You have to understand the nature of sin. Let's talk about, we'll kind of unpack that a little bit, kind of levels of sin. The first level, sinful acts. These are things that, as it says, I do. I, I lie or I, I gossip or I cheat. I'll, I'll give you a, a good example. My first pastorate, I was the pastor at Bergen, Kentucky. Um, there was, uh, I got a call at the office and this lady said, my mom's in the hospital, will you come pray with her? She's pretty sick. I was like, yeah, I'll be glad to do that. So I, I drove up there. And when I got in the room, I, know, I knew who they were. These were. This was a family from First Baptist Church. Now, I wasn't First Baptist Church. They weren't, they weren't our people. So as a pastor, in all of my compassion, the first thing I thought of was, hey, we might steal this family uh, from First Baptist, um, which would be awesome. I'm like, oh, great. And so I, I was very pastorly, and, and I said you know, things like, Oh, is Pastor, their pastor was Pastor Rush. Is Pastor Rush out of town? Or is he sick? Is that why he can't come? What I wanted them to say was, no, Pastor Rush is a jerk. We like you better. This, is, this was my anticipated response. Uh, that's not what they said. They said, no, we love Pastor Rush. He's in town. But Mom is contagious, and we didn't want to put him at risk. That is a sinful act right there. It's a sinful act. Okay. Now, the primary uh, tool we use to deal with sin is denial. Denial isn't just a river in Egypt. Uh, we use it. Now, get this, get this, get this. Um, in a, a research done by a guy named Robert Feldman in 2002, University of Massachusetts, he discovered that normal, regular people like us in every 10-minute conversation, lie two or three times. We, we lie, by the way, our tone or our word choice or our body language. And he gives this example. Like if you show up at a meeting late and you say, I was caught in traffic, well, the, the reality of it is you didn't plan ahead enough. Uh, you really, if you had gotten going a little earlier, you could have. But these, this wasn't an, an important enough appointment to, to really get off the, the schneid and get there. And so we... We sort of do this shading. We, we kind of uh, push things to our direction. George Barna, who's a, a Christian statistician, uh, did some research around. He, he asked this question, anonymously, by the way. So anybody could answer this online. Nobody knew who it was. Um, the, the question was, um, what, are the, what are your greatest temptations? What's your greatest temptation? Now, now think about our world and the great temptations that are out there. Uh, pornography, uh, racism. Uh, again, they're going to answer this question and nobody's going to know who it was. So you'd think there would be these deep temptations. Look at what they got. Um, I'm tempted to worry too much. Sometimes I put things, I procrastinate. Sometimes I eat too much. Sometimes I use social media too much. I can be lazy. 
Does that seem a little soft to anybody? I, I mean, we, there's this really awesome text that says, the heart is deceptive above all things. We have this ability to think better of ourselves than we really need to. Now, Scripture, Romans chapter 3, brutally honest. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. We have all turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And you think to yourself, well, who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about us. We, we mentioned this early in this series, that in our society, we've replaced the word soul with the word self. And, and what we've decided is, okay, we're generally good people at our core. It's just we don't have enough self-esteem. If our self felt better about ourselves, then we would be okay. It's, it's all about feeling good about yourself. So we stop keeping score at games and everybody gets trophies because the deal is we just want to improve esteem. Whitney Houston a few years ago had that song, Greatest Love of All. Remember that? Remember that? And in that she says, she makes makes the assertion that learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. Think about that in juxtaposition of what Jesus said. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down one's life for a friend. There are lots of great expressions of love. Sacrificial love, love of country. Jesus said, love so great that you're willing to give your life. Whitney Houston sang a song and people believed it that the greatest love is to love yourself. Does that seem a little superficial? I would assert to you there's not been a time in human history where that song would have been treated as uh, as legitimate I mean Shakespeare didn't write the play Romeo it it, it had two characters there was selfless love involved Jesus says hey there's selfless love and it's the greatest kind of love loving yourself I I mean we we respect the fact that God loves us, but we also have to be honest enough to admit that we are messed up. We, we sin. We make mistakes. Even preachers, not often, but sometimes, make mistakes and sin. Look, look at this verse. The Dewey Rhymes uh, version was written in 1899, but I love the language. Therefore, cast away all uncleanness and the abundance of naughtiness. Who uses that? I mean, I love that. The abundance of naughtiness and with meekness receive the engrafted word, God's word in our hearts, which is able to save your souls. We sort of just avoid the language that we are sinners. We are sinners. When you look in the mirror, you're going to see one. The beautiful thing is God loves us anyway. Not because we're good, Even though we're bad, God loves us. So, number one, sinful acts. Number two, sinfulness. Sinfulness. These are patterns, habits that we get into that are sinful. Um, 
we, we do stuff like we, we're, we cater to people who are attractive or we cater to people who have power because of something we might get out of it. We don't like it about ourselves, but it's true. We, we don't like it, but does it make it not true? Paul talks about it in Romans. I don't really understand myself. I, uh, I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do. I mean, this is, this is a man in touch with his soul. There's stuff I wish I was better at, but I'm not. And you see, our spirituality is, is tied into our habits. A habit, a definition. A habit is a relatively, um, uh, is a relatively uh, pattern of uh, behavior, a relatively permanent pattern of behavior. These are things we sort of do. Um, when you're learning to drive a stick shift, you have to think about it, right? Clutch, uh, change gear, and you grind the gears a few times, and you're learning, right? You're learning to drive the stick shift. My daughter, Amaris, we, <laughs> we, she bought a stick shift car, had never driven one ever in her life. We lived in New Mexico. Two days later, she drove cross-country to Louisville in a car that was brand new to her. And it was basically like throwing her out in the middle of the lake and teaching her to swim. She's great at it now. But you have to learn. You have to think. You have to think about shifting the gears. It's just how, when you, when you learn to type, don't you have to think about the letters? I never think about the letters. I don't even know where the letters are anymore. A-S-D-F. I think that's one side. I don't remember the right hand anymore. I can just type. When I was learning to type, I had to think about it. These are habits that you get into. And... Habits are enormously freeing. I don't have to think about tying my shoes, but your five and six-year-old do. They have to figure out the whole looping thing. and I, I don't have to think about how to play the piano. I don't know how, and I don't want to know how. Uh, but people that have learned that, they, they don't have to think about it anymore. But Elise has taken piano lessons, and you can watch the little gears turning in her mind when she's trying to figure out what notes to play. But once you get it, you don't have to think about it. That's the, the freeness of, of, of habits. Um, tonight, when you go to bed, if you're, if you're a married couple, do you have to think about which side of the bed to sleep on? It's a habit. Man, if you say something wrong, do you have to think about that you're going to sleep on the couch? No. Uh, it's a habit. We get into these habits. And, and so it, being habitual, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem is, sin can enter my habits, and, and, and it can mess up my habits. So one of the most important truths that we're ever going to learn is, is about our spiritual life is that we are mostly a collection of our habits. We're mostly a collection of our habits, spiritually speaking. And if you don't pay attention to this, it kind of messes up your life. Um, so the power to acquire good habits... Is a really, really good thing. Now, you might say, okay, but I, I have willpower. And, and I can overcome bad habits with willpower. And you can for a while. The problem with that is, I mean, you get motivated. You know, you hear a great sermon. Oh, it's a great sermon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not lie anymore. I'm not going to cheat anymore. I'm not going to go to that website anymore. And you willpower your, your way through that. But eventually, you give in. Because here's the truth. Over the long haul, your habits will always defeat your willpower. That's why organizations like 
Alcoholics Anonymous exist. Because basically, what you're doing is replacing old habits with new habits. Our only hope is not for more willpower, it's to replace old habits with new habits. And we see evidence of this in Scripture all the time. Look at Acts 2. Um, talks about the disciples. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking bread and to prayer. They got together. They studied the scriptures. They studied the teachings of Jesus. They fellowshiped. They had meals together. They prayed together. They were replacing sinful habits with new, better habits. This is what they were doing. In fact, Romans 2 talks about it, or 12 talks about it. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by developing new habits. So you give your, um, your mind over. Maybe your habit is, I, I watch 12 hours of television a day. Maybe the new habit is, I, I'm going to read my Bible. I, I'm going to devote some of my time to the study of Scripture. Maybe uh, I, I'm going to start using my hands to to uh, practice giving. Maybe I'm going to use my feet to go someplace and practice serving. Maybe I'm going to use my lips to um, be grateful and not in- ungrateful. Uh, maybe sometimes I'm just going to keep my mouth shut because that's really a good habit, by the way. Maybe I'm going to open my ears up to hear the beauty that's all around me that I'm, I so often miss because I'm so busy. And I'm going to develop new habits that are replacing these sinful habits that that pull me away from God. And really, the biggest problem is we have original sin. Uh, We're born with a sin nature. It's sort of a dud, but it's true. It explains in Romans 5, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam sinned, brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And we all should say, thanks a lot, Adam, uh, because he messed it up for everybody. But we all sin, and we all have this sin nature. And if you've got children, you understand this. My, all my girls, when, when they were born, they bore the image of God. They were perfect and beautiful. And at about two, something happens to them. And I know the cause. They were in the church nursery with your kids. And, uh, um, and that's it, because if they had just been with us... Um, but our, our kids, we don't have to wait long before the sin nature presents itself. And, and we need each other. In, in James, we're going to end with this text. James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed emotionally and physically and spiritually. See, we help each other. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. We need this power of confession to one another where we don't have to act like we've got it all together when we really don't have it all together. Bad news is we're sinners. Good news is God loves us anyway. And He wants to heal our souls. I want to end with one little story. It's a guy named Kevin Jenkins. and His family um, practiced the tradition of Ash Wednesday where they would go to church for a service and on Ash Wednesday, every Ash Wednesday, they would uh, fill out a little piece of paper with kind of their confession of sins on it. And they would fold it, and at the end of the service, they would take it to the cross. They had a cross on stage, and they would put a little pen in it, and they'd pin it to the cross. 
You always folded it, you didn't sign it, you pinned it to the cross. But Jenkins' young, young son um, decided that six years old in block letters, he wrote out, um, sometimes I lie. And then he signed it. And then he took it to the cross and he pinned it where everybody could read it. And Kevin Jenkins pulled his son aside and said, son, I mean, that's not how we do it. We, we fold it. Nobody knows who, we don't sign it. And in great wisdom that only a six-year-old can possess, this little boy, he said, you know, Dad, I put it up there so people could read it, and the ones that know me can help me. It's not lie anymore. We replace bad habits a lot of times by telling people these are the good habits we want to get we want to start uh, showing in our lives we want to start doing some different things in our lives and the the beauty of this verse is if you tell somebody now you're accountable to do it hey i'm gonna i want to really i want to start reading my bible more i was in a men's group uh, when i lived in kentucky and we met every i forget i think it was thursday morning for breakfast and and we asked i think it was 10 or 11 questions they would ask you uh, we would ask each other, uh, have you studied your scriptures this week? Have you been in prayer? Uh, have you looked at anything you shouldn't look at this past week? And you're as accountable as you want to be. I get that, but here's what I know about accountability. There would be days when I got to the end of the day and I hadn't read my Bible yet and I knew Thursday morning they were going to ask me. And it's 11 o'clock and I'm tired as I can be. But I cracked that Bible open. And I read a little bit because on Thursday morning, I didn't want to lie. And I didn't want to tell them I hadn't read my Bible every day. Because you, if you said, um, yeah, I, I mean, I read six days, but I missed a day, they were all like, hmm, dude. <laughs> you know? I mean, it helps us to be accountable. You, you want to have a, a healthy soul? Practice right habits and be accountable to somebody that you're practicing right habits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message and these words. And man, Matthew, the way he was healed spiritually and emotionally. And then he shares his story and he helps us. And Father, we all sin and we apologize to you and we ask that you... Help us to get out of bad habits that mess up our lives, that keep us separated from you. Help us to develop good habits, not out of legalism, but out of a desire to have a right relationship with you. And then give us people in our lives that will hold us accountable. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.